0: Welcome to the Black Hereford Chronicles with Jen Hill. Here we discuss all things Black Hereford. Join me for in depth conversations and insightful interviews relevant to your Black Hereford operation. That I've never really properly introduced myself to you guys. So, there's a lot of you that probably know me uh, that we've met at various Black Hereford events over the years, but I think there's probably a lot of people that I haven't actually met yet. So, I thought I would take some time today during this episode to let you get to know me, the host, a little bit and kind of who we are at our operation and what we do and how we got into this. So I own and operate HI slash cattle company with my husband, Logan Hill. And we are now in the Nebraska Sandhills, uh, just about an hour north of North Platte. But that's not really how we started. My husband was a fifth generation rancher out in Northwestern Colorado. And that's where we were up until the end of 2021. Up until this last year, we ran two separate operations. We had our commercial cow-calf operation that was called the Cripple Cowboy Cow Outfit. And then we ran our registered herd separate as a separate LLC alongside that Black Dragon Cattle Company. And we were in extreme Northwestern Colorado. We ran a little bit into the Utah area there. And we ran on a lot of BLM land. And for those of you that don't have experience with federal lands, It's pretty much the nightmare that you would expect land that is owned and managed by the government bureaucracy to be. We were constantly dealing with issues like wild horses and fence building. Everything that are normal ranch operations that become that much more difficult because now you have to involve the government. So, for instance, we had a fence line burned down in a fire and it was a a border fence between us and a neighbor. And it took years, years to even get the BLM to consider allowing us to rebuild that fence. We paid for the archeology span study. We had all the paperwork filed, and we were probably three years into the process when we finally left and we're being told that it would be another year or two before they would even look at our application, all to rebuild a fence. So, With all of those issues boiling up and and adding in the drought and thinking about whether there's a future in federal lands ranching and what it is that Logan and I were most passionate about, we decided to sell our operation and relocate. And that's when we came to Nebraska. And at that time, we decided to just go ahead and combine our two separate businesses, the cow-calf operation and the seed stock, into one. H.I. Slash cattle company and H.I. Slash is our family brand that has been in Logan's family since 1909. So it seemed like a good way to honor our past while moving forward to a new future. Logan had always had an interest for the seed stock side of the business, but it wasn't something that we had a whole lot of experience in. In college, he was on the seed stock team at Colorado State, and that was pretty much it. But on our commercial side, we had been running Hereford and Angus bowls, you know, producing those F1 baldies for our calves for generations. And then Logan and I were at a cattleman's convention walking around the trade show. And we came by this tiny little booth tucked next to the Romaniolas was the American Black Herefords. I don't even remember who it was that would have been working there at the time. It may have even been the Hoagland's. And it was a light bulb moment. Oh, you know, that's a thing. Maybe this is something we should explore. So we decided to dip our toes in and we did not do a very good job of it. The, the first registered cows we bought, we went to a sale in Grand Island, Nebraska. It was an Angus dispersal. And those cows were not actually even from Nebraska. They were coming all the way from Ohio. And we bought a trailer load of these registered Angus cows and got them home to our rough, you know, desert, rocky country. And I swear two or three of them just flopped over dead the second they unloaded from the trailer. They looked around and decided they were not going to survive that country. And over the next two or three years, every registered cow we bought out of that sale died in stupid ways, you know, falling through ice on frozen ponds and things like that. And it was a really eye-opening experience for us about the importance of knowing where any purchased animals are coming from and breeding for your environment. And so we really reconsidered or were forced to reconsider how we wanted to build our F1s We've always been forced to stay kind of small on the seed stock side of it, keeping our commercial operation as kind of our bread and butter. Uh, In our old location, we weren't really set up to do seed stock very well. The physical location just wasn't ideal for seed stock. And I know that sounds really weird to people that have never seen some of that rough high desert country, but... Our previous ranch, you know, doing a pasture clear out, just getting everything out to move cows for the season would take three to four weeks because that's just the kind of country that it was. So it really wasn't a great setup for trying to take birth weights, trying to keep a good eye on your seed stock cows. It just wasn't wasn't working super well. And so fast forward to now and we're in a very different situation and growing our seed stock herd. Uh, We also run Angus cows and sell some Angus bulls every year. So it's been really exciting to be able to focus in more on what we feel passionate about and what we're excited about and grow that seed stock side of the business. Okay. So now that you know a little bit about me and where I come from, I want to jump into today's conversation. I've decided that it's time to have a conversation about a topic that's really, really important to all of our operations, but that we don't talk about a whole lot because it doesn't make us feel good. And that's our culling practices. I decided to bring on Logan, and we just kind of ruminated about the whole idea of culling practices, what we do and what works and what hasn't, and how that all ties in to reporting and the needs we have with reporting on our animals Let's dig in. Okay, so I want to talk about culling today. And I think this is a very timely conversation because Logan and I were just having this hard conversation this morning out checking registered calves and looking at who was calving well and, and who wasn't. And really having to make some of those hard choices for next year. And it's culling isn't something we talk a whole lot as an industry about. I think in part because it's acknowledging where we've failed and nobody wants to admit where they're not doing well at. But it is really important because if you're not culling, then you're not improving. So I think let's start off talking about kind of general culling practices and focus in first on the females and what it is specifically that you first select for, and what are your hard line, I absolutely will not keep a cow, whether it's a heifer or an older cow, what are the things that you specifically are looking for that are your must, will call no matter what kind of lines?
1: Okay, so in my opinion, your first threshold should be, uh, does the cow have an udder that is good enough to make milk? Then maybe she makes a lot of milk, but maybe your teats are too big and the calf can't get on there and suck. So some associations, including the ABHA, have started implementing udder scores to try to bring that in. But That's kind of a subjective measurement, and it's hard to to quantify exactly what those look like. Um, on paper, when it's uh, more of a visual appraisal type of thing for me, and you see, some people would look at a teat size and say, "Oh, that should be like a six for tightness or six for uh, for um, for width around the nipple." And somebody else would look at it and say, "Oh no, that that cow is only a four. You know, that's not a very good udder. And it's very and it's kind of on that. It's kind of like a I say this, you say that kind of scale, and it's very subjective. Um, so I think udder composition is really important. And and like you said, uh, when we were just out a few minutes ago looking at our herd, and there's one cow whose bag is kind of blown out in front, and I think you were just going to have to sell her because it's our ability as seed stock producers." to not pass issues down to our customers.
0: And I think you hit on something really important there too. We have to remember that even though a lot of sales right now are done inter-association, our ultimate customer is the commercial cow-calf guy. And what are the things that are most important to him? And that very first thing is gonna be a live calf on the ground that will make it to weaning. And utter absolutely is going to be tied into that. We can't be putting out bad utters. So what else are you calling for? That's just an easy, no brainer choice to make.
1: Well, along the same lines as the utter quality, like uh, the, our first responsibility is to do no harm to our customers. It's just like the medical oath, you know, um, you want something that's as fault-free as you can pass on to your customers. Um, so, If you've got a cow that you have to pull every calf out of, or if you've got a line where, oh, this cow is always going to get hip locked, you know, you can't do that. Um, So feet and structure is our next section. Um, If they can't walk around and travel, it doesn't matter how small your pastures are. If you're trying to sell bulls or females out of that herd, then you'd better be watching that and make sure that they are able to travel because you don't know what they're going to be going to for your customers. And then there's also a production threshold. Um, if we get, uh, we wean a set of calves and they're under like a 90 ratio, then in uh, in, in my opinion, you're, you're selling those, ki- those calves that ratio under 90 every time. And you need to take a hard look at the cow. You know, maybe say the calf got a little bit of no ammonia and that's why it ratioed under 90. Maybe you could go ahead and keep that cow another year. But if there was nothing wrong with the calf, then I think that cow should probably get rolled.
0: I'm curious, how many chances do you give a cow? Like, let's say <laughs> she's got calving trouble. Let's say, I mean, obviously something like she can't walk is an easy one. But calving trouble, there can be so many factors that go into that. How many chances do you Give a cow and how many chances do you really think you should?
1: Right. So that's a very good question. Um, I would say, and yes, I'm guilty of it. You know, I've kept a cow. Then I had to do a little bit of work to pull her calf. Well, it's kind of a threshold deal for me. Like if uh, the calf just not quite presented right, maybe it's got a leg back, but then can, it's an an easy adjustment and then the calf comes right out. Well, maybe that's just a one-off thing and go ahead and breed that cow another year and try it again. Uh, But it's been kind of shown that if um, a calf is completely breached or upside down or in a really bad presentation, and that can be something that's heritable in the cow, And in my opinion, you just roll those and you you don't look back because you're doing your customers a disservice.
0: Okay, so let's talk about heifers a little bit. We've talked about calving, but making those decisions when they're younger is in some ways easier because you're not as attached to what they could have been and is in some ways harder because they're younger and you have more hope out there for them. So when you're looking at heifers, what are easy things that you spot as far as whether it's disposition or phenotype? What are you calling on?
1: Uh, So definitely the first thing that I look at, and I think most people probably do, too, whether they admit it or not, would be their confirmation and shape. Are they the type and kind that you are looking for in your herd? Um, Do they have a clean front? Do they have a good pelvic opening? Do they have a long hip? Those are the profit factors that you need to make sure that you're putting into your herd. And so having the right kind of confirmation for durability, longevity, and calving ease are the first step on heifer selection.
0: What age would you say you usually know that by?
1: I would say I definitely have a good feeling on it by weaning time, which is seven, approximately seven months. And um, but then they can also have the opportunity to fall out and fail by the time they turn yearlings. If once again, they hit the yearling and they haven't grown very good. You know, they didn't make that at least 90 ratio threshold just on a hard line. Then they got to go in in my opinion.
0: So really, if we're being honest with ourselves, culling should be. A constant, a constant decision-making process, something that's always in the back of your mind. It's easy, you know. I'm thinking about it right now because it's fall and we're looking at both our fall-born calves and how those mothers are doing, as well as on our commercial herd side. You know, we're approaching weaning time, and that's always a really good time to be thinking about how everybody's handled everything. But really, if you're looking at heifers at weaning time and then again at yearling. It, it's something that should be a constant decision maker.
1: I would go even farther and say that it, uh, culling is something that should always be in the back of your mind all the time, no matter when you're looking at the cattle. Um, if there's something that you just don't like about an animal, then, you know, maybe you just need to send her down the road and try something different. Um, I a lot of people say, oh, well, that sucks and you're getting rid of something. But on the other hand, if you really look at it, it's an opportunity to improve your herd with one swing of the sword gate?
0: Well, and we're all in a position, especially this year, where everybody, or at least most of the country, is struggling for grass. Yep. And if I'm gonna give up ground and feed, It needs to be for something that I think will have a a good ROI on it and is going to be marketable and is going to bring me return customers.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's uh, in times like these, there's definitely no reason to keep a substandard animal in whatever metric it is that you want to use in your herd. Uh, If there's something just as close to the threshold, but isn't there, but you're limited on feed or space resources, then you've got to get rid of them.
0: Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about bulls. And they're a little bit trickier because they have the quicker return on investment in seed stock. So it can be very tempting to just throw them all out there and see what sticks. But reality is if you want a sustainable business and a sustainable market for your bulls, you've got to be willing to swing that knife. And it's something, you know, that we had to do after we moved, we had sold down our herd so badly prior to our move just because we were being hit so hard with the drought and we knew that the move was coming. And and so we had really sold down to what we felt like was the best of the best. And we got here and we still wound up with a black Herford bull that just wouldn't grow. So out the knife came and yep. now... We will eat him at Christmas time. And I think it's important to not be afraid to steer some of those bulls. So kind of the same questions. What specifically are you looking at on bulls? And when are you making those decisions? Because obviously those decisions have to be made earlier.
1: Yeah, you don't have as much time frame with which to to clean out your bulls. You're going to be offering for sale, that's for sure. Um, It's it's the same growth threshold for me like that you hit that 90 ratio as a minimum anything below that's gone immediately Uh, that's both at weaning ball and at yearling time um and then the same issues with structure and maybe this calf just doesn't quite fit the rest of the herd uh he's got the, the kind of look that you just don't like um he needs to go uh if you see an issue that might pass down to your customers, like <clears throat> let's look at um, a bull that did good, did well. He uh, fed out, he finished nicely. He's at a at the top tier of the weight, but you find out that his dam is not, is came back open. Well, you may need, maybe maybe didn't think about that and say, well, was she skinny, and did she not breed back because she didn't perform? Uh, does that mean that that calf is maybe not going to work well for your customers? And there's all those questions, and it's our job as a seed stock provider to try and make sure that we're providing fault-free, as close to fault-free cattle as we can to our customers, again. And on uh, other culling thresholds for bulls, I'm uh, obviously a breeding soundness exam is a must. Um, if they don't hit the minimum threshold for what your vet would say is uh, a breeding bull, then you need to make sure that that calf just goes to market. And whether that means you band them and eat them yourself in some cases, or uh, if they're too old and you just want to send them down to the stockyard, whatever. But they, you know, they can't, if they're struggling to produce semen at say 15 months, then maybe that's a lifelong problem
0: this is where I'm going to go off the rails a little bit and put in a little plug. So if you've got bulls that you're looking to get rid of that aren't going to make the cut for breeding, there are a lot of schools out there that are really in need of ground beef donations. And those bulls make for excellent ground. They just grind the whole thing up and you wind up with a ton of ground beef. And as long as you're getting it done at a USDA inspected facility, your local school can take that. And then you both get to look like the good guy because you've given meat to the school and you're encouraging those kids to get hooked on beef, which is a great thing. And I know that that was completely off the rails, but it's a program I really believe in.
1: Yeah, that's a a good way to help out the community and and also uh, your optics as well.
0: So I'm going to put you in the hot seat a little bit Mm -hmm. and bring up a topic that uh, you kind of took some heat on on the old Facebook Recently, and that's selecting and culling based on color. So you are marketing semen on a black Hereford bowl that is 87% Hereford.
1: Like 86.8%, basically. Right. So 87 basically.
0: And is head-to-toe black. Yep. Solid black bowl. And it it brought up a lot of conversation about whether or not we should be selecting and culling on color. There's a lot of people out there who believe that a black Hereford needs to look exactly like a Hereford, but with black where the red is. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that prefer that and like that. I I prefer that as far as a black Hereford, but I see a purpose in your bowl. So kind of walk me through why you didn't call him, why you are using him in your herd, and how you would use a bowl like that in your herd, and how you think that would benefit your customers.
1: So my thought process is there is, yeah, obviously we're in the black Herefords because we want the black hair to qualify for CAB and other premiums. And we want the white face because that helps market cattle. It, it truly does. There is a, a bump in the market for having that baldy face on there. But at the end of the day, none of that matters as much as putting down pounds and quality meat and the, and the right kind of structure for your environment. So the bull in question, in my opinion, is one of the best bulls that we have in our battery. Um, he's got a decent birth weight, so you're not having the calving ease issues. Uh, he's got a long back long spine so I, I'm
0: gonna pause you there and back that up by decent birth weight what do you mean because I'm seeing mm. some like 40 pound birth weights no, going out I there right now and that scares me
1: no not on our herd right now <laughs> this these calves are coming at, uh, I think the lowest one of his has been 69 pounds between there and 85 and I I feel, feel like that's roughly ideal even on uh, heifers you know you'll want them in that 70 to 80 range. And that that's a healthy calf. They've got hair, they've got shape, they've got quality, the ability to get up and suck right away. Whereas a light calf that's too light, can't. Um, But anyway, this bull that we're talking about has three generations of supreme dams in his pedigree, which means that his female side has proven to be exceptional as far as uh, weaning weights and uh, breed back capability is. Has gone, and um, he's got the yield grade and the, and bull and the quality to make really great beef. So he's just kind of a complete bull, which is why I use him. And you know, a white face is something that can be fixed in one generation.
0: So would you say something like that has to be strategically used? Like you're not going to want to use a bull like that on cows that already have a ton of pigment, but maybe more on those ones that are swinging a little too chromy. Because you do get docked for feathers you do. as well. Our commercial guys, when they haul calves, they will get docked for feathers. Not
1: just that, but also having white eyes and white feet and white udders. All three of those things are big discounts in the market. Um, so, yes, I think you should be used strategically on your more classically Hereford-looking cows. Um And that'll be through an AI program or maybe a sort if you've got a herd sire pasture that you can just put those pairs into. Um, There's definitely places to use them and maybe places you shouldn't like uh, with a solid black female.
0: So right now, the association has no rules regarding color. Right. A lot of associations do. Angus is very specific about what white will be allowed. Yep. Um, I don't know, does Hereford have any kind of coloration rules? Not that I'm aware of. Do you see the Black Hereford Association going that way? Do you ever see there being a discussion about what markings in color is acceptable?
1: Well, in a way, the Black Hereford Association already does because we don't allow red bulls to be registered.
0: Right, but the females can as HXs.
1: HXs, yes. And in my opinion, we're losing some of our genetic progress because we're not registering those red bulls and being able to use those.
0: Oh, boy, you're going to open up a whole <laughs> other can of worms That's here. Right.
1: That's right. That's what I'm good for. But um, but no, I people talk about it all the time. And I guess the only answer I have is that I would hope that that discussion doesn't ever come to fruition.
0: Well, I guess to me, it would come down to different strokes for different folks. I don't have to like what everyone else is doing, nor do I have to think that what somebody is using down in Florida has to work for what I'm using out here in the Midwest. Different strokes for different folks. And if you don't like it, it's one of those things. Just keep scrolling by. That's right. Find something else that does work for your operation. I don't know that more rules are really what we need. But of course, you know, I'm a bit of an anarchist. So I may not be the best on that. So talk to me about how you report those coals and how you deal right. with that on digital beef and the right. impact that has on your data set.
1: Well, it's very important to carry every calf that you can and report that on every calf, at least through weaning. Because and the reason for that is if you pull off calves and you don't get their weaning weights because they're just not a very good calf, well that moves your median weaning weight point. Let's say you had, um, let's say you had ten calves that weighed over six hundred and those are the best ones in your herd, and you've got others that weigh, you know, maybe five twenty five. Uh, but you decide you're going to cull all those ones that didn't make that threat your threshold of 600 pounds at weaning Um, so you don't even bother weighing them and ship them down the road well that means that you're moving your median point for where your ratios are calculated into that 600 range which means that your top half of your calves are only going to be distributed across the ratio is to- uh, uh, all, all across the ratio spectrum instead of showing that those calves are the best in your herd.
0: Right. When your bottom end looks higher, whether or not it really was, it means right. that your top end doesn't look quite as top.
1: Exactly. It brings
0: everything down a bit.
1: Exactly. Whereas you're a lot better off if you go ahead and report all the weaning weights from your entire calf crop. Then you've got the actual spectrum of your bottom calf at five twenty-five, your top calf at six fifty, and the ratios filling in between. And and you're just shooting yourself in the foot if you don't report all of those calves. Now I understand that when it comes to yearling weights because those are just as important in my mind. But it's hard to make yourself carry a calf all the way to yearling if they're just a dog and they're not going to grow. Um, so I realize there's going to be some fallout, and you're going to kind of skew your yearling weights based off your to- entire calf crop at that point. But um, it's important to go ahead and and weigh and measure and get ultrasounds on as many cattle out of your herd as possible.
0: Do you think that in the Black Herford Association we have a data reporting problem?
1: Uh, we do, but I'm not going to limit it just to the Black Herford Association. I'm going to, I would say that. Uh, in the seed stock industry as a whole, you see massive amounts of under-reporting on registered cattle. Um, there are breeders in all associations that uh, struggle to go ahead and, and submit all of their weights, and uh, maybe they don't even own scales at home. Um, that you know, then they're in it for the show, maybe. Uh, but some of them are actual like uh, name producers that just don't bother to weigh and measure all of their cattle.
0: So there's been a few people that have come on this podcast and mentioned just real slight here, their whole herd reporting. And I know that that's something that you have spent a lot of time thinking about. And as you know, Angus producers also, it's something that we're familiar with on the Angus side. So let's dive into that a little bit deeper than what I've had a chance to up to now. Would you explain exactly what whole herd reporting is and why you think it's valuable?
1: Sure. So uh, I mentioned other associations. The Hereford Association at this time requires whole herd reporting if you want EPDs on your herd. If you're just there for show, then you're just a pedigree breeder. You don't have to do it. Um, Angus Association right now is doing a voluntary program where you can whole herd report your females if you want to. And, uh, but you don't have to be in that program. Uh, so what it is, is you have to report a calving status and a, and a birth weight at minimum on every cow that you have in your herd inventory. Um, the point of that is to show their fertility function and the, how long the cow lasts in the herd before you roll her out.
0: So do you think that's leaving, leading to a longevity
1: EPD. That's part of the point. Absolutely. Whether you call it uh, sustained cow fertility, like the Herefords do, whether you call it longevity or herd retention, whatever you want to call it, it's basically all the same thing.
0: Can we call it dollar not dead?
1: <laughs> There's a good start, <laughs> but, um, it allows you to uh, create uh, a metric for your whole herd as to how fertile, how long they last. And, um, it's, Just a great benchmark for uh, moving forward with um, with data collection on a mass scale.
0: So then how do you respond? Because, you know, we've talked to some Angus breeders that are adamantly against whole herd reporting because they say that the sheer amount of paperwork of data collection and submission is just too heavy for them, that they can't take the time to do all of that. So what do you say to the people that are concerned about how much more time and effort that takes?
1: Um, I'd say that uh, there is some truth to that. I think the base, the most important thing for that discussion would be to keep your herd inventory clean. And so that you're only showing active animals in whatever association it is that you actually have out in your pasture right now um, that's. A challenge when you get to a harder uh, to a, a bigger herd. Uh,
0: but to me, if you're running 300 bulls through your sail ring every year, you can probably pony up for someone that can manage that.
1: That would be my opinion. Yeah. And yeah, I would think that you would be able to manage uh, um, all the necessary data that goes into it. Right. I mean, that's part of what we do it's you know uh, there was somebody once told me that uh, a registered seed stock program is about five times as much work as a commercial herd and that's just part of what we need to be doing
0: we are sponsored today by cattle tracks a low cost non-invasive way to track the movement of cattle all with a cell phone app the idea of individual animal tracing calving to processor isn't going away anytime soon in fact, we're seeing more branded programs and associations encouraging it. Cattle Tracks combines traceability, data collection, and new technology in the way that our industry is moving. If you haven't checked them out, I highly encourage you to take a look. You can visit CattleTracks, that's T-R-A-C-S dot com to learn more. Okay, so I know this is a little bit off topic, but it's not too far off, so I think it's fair game. So on the other side of culling is going to be selection, right? And it's pretty similar. So I think it's worth talking about. So let's talk first about herd sires and selecting the next herd sire that you're going to bring in. Right now in the Black Hereford world, I think we have more choices than we ever have before. Definitely. Um, I also think there's a lot of really cool people that are out there building it from the ground up still that are starting with those F1s, which is really exciting, too, because that's just going to open up our genetic diversity and, and we'll see some cool things. So tell me about what you're selecting based on when you're looking at a herd sire, and just kind of all of your ins and outs.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think uh, one of the most important things to look at when you're selecting a bull is First off, does he fit your goals? Does he know where you... Do you know where you're trying to go?
0: I think you'd have to back that one up even further, though, and say that you have to have, like, real written goals somewhere.
1: That's probably true, yeah. You need to know where you're trying to go with your herd and what you're trying to build.
0: And maybe and, when your wife tries to write those down, you don't avoid her for a week.
1: <laughs> well, we're not going to touch that one. <laughs> but you need to know where you're going and uh, what... Your herd, you need to be honest about what your hurt is right now. So you, as a segue into what you need to go, where you need to pick the bull that's going to get you closer to where you want to be. And that's the first and most important thing. So that could look like, oh, my cows, you know, they're calving in the 90s and 100s. I need something that brings down that birth weight right up front. Well, maybe you need to pick a heifer bull to breed those cows to. Um, well, these cows just don't have the growth that they that I need to see in my herd. Well, maybe you need to take pick like a top one percent bull that uh, will really add a whole bunch of growth to your cows and make them really pop. Um, We've t- already talked about during the calling section cleaning up udders. You know, when you're looking at herd bulls, call the guy that owns them, then um, you're you're looking at buying from. And then just ask them, how are the udders from his mother? How are the udders, if he's a, a walking herd sire, how are the udders on his daughters? Those are very important questions.
0: Would it be taboo to ask for pictures?
1: I, I wouldn't say no. I think that you can absolutely ask for whatever information you want um, and need to make the selection for your herd.
0: I know I wouldn't take that offensively. You know, if I had a guy on the hook for a bull and he asked to see pictures of the dam in yeah. Grand Dam, I know like to me, that's just a guy that knows his stuff yeah. that's asking the right questions. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um I, I wouldn't take offense to it. Um I've called up people when I'm talking about uh this bull or that bull and asked for their honest opinion on their evaluating their own cattle and, and I've never had uh, bad response from somebody saying, "Oh no, I'm not going to help you out." If they're wanting to move their product, they'll help you. Um, and then this kind of naturally leads into selection of females. So you look at the bull, and then you ask about his damn side, because that's only half of the equation. You uh, uh, you see the production on Digital Beef. We have a great uh, a great resource at the bottom of the EPD page where it can shows um the f- mother's weaning ratios yearling ratios all of her production information on the bottom of digital beef um so it's all automatically right there for you to look at that's uh, a very good place to start and then you look at how many how big the contemporary groups were that that bull was in and then you had know, like okay this bull is actually exceptional in this area that i'm trying to improve um, so on the female side, like the great bull is only going to come out of a great cow. The cow herself carries uh the mRNA, the mitochondrial RNA that drives the metabolism of your animal, and that solely comes from the female side. So, if you've got a really strong, prepotent, and by that I mean all of her calves look really typey cow in your herd, then uh, you're going to have a good calf out of it. If you take the best bull in the entire breed and breed them to substandard cows, then you're going to expect to have mediocre calves. That's just the way it's going to be. So then that can be great for bull pulling up the bottom end of your herd, but you're not going to expect to have the next great herd sire out of those mediocre cows.
0: Okay. So I want to ask you about another one that's a little bit of a a hot button subject. We've seen over the last two years in the Black herford world, a really heavy selection focus on homozygous. And I think I think the pendulum's starting to swing the other way, but it, there's been some some interesting results of that focus. Yes, so will absolutely. you kind of talk about why that kind of came about in the first place, why people, Went so frenzied yeah. for homozygous black and what the result of that has been. Yeah.
1: So for several years, basically for as long as we've been in the association, which is about 11, 12 years now, um, you've seen a massive focus on homozygous black to the exclusion of every other trait that the animal carries. So what that meant was it could be a bottom end bull. It could be a ratioing of 90. Uh, At weaning, you know, whatever it is, at yearling time. And he's homozygous black. He's the only one in the herd. So he's your top seller. And that means that you're actually not progressing your herd, your own herd, when you pick up that bull. And the reason for that was that people were just wanting to make sure that they were getting the black calves. They didn't want to risk the red bulls. They didn't want to risk having HX females. And that means we're limiting the ability of our breeders to grow because we're not looking for the actual quality animals. We're just selecting on that one trait.
0: So really it's more of an issue of single trait selection.
1: Absolutely. Right. And in my mind, it's a trait. Yes. The red calves get docked at the sale barn. Everybody knows that. That's why we're in the association and the black Hereford association to begin with. Uh, but at the same time, uh, high production red calf is going to bring more money than a low value black calf.
0: Absolutely. We see that every year at the sale barn. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's time for me to ask you that famous last question. Mm -hmm. What is one thing that you would change about black Herefords?
1: Well, that's kind of a hard question, but I would say
0: he's lying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would say that you need to see a greater emphasis on well, let's make it to two parts, actually. I think you need to see a greater emphasis on pushing your percentage hereford up to a higher point it's because our job as a seed stock provider is to provide heterosis for our customers, not to absorb it in our own herd and profit on ourselves. So ideally, you know, uh, an F1, cry, you know, or 62.5% black hereford, it'd be great on a continental cow because, you know, we're getting a max heterosis out of that cross. Whereas you can take a 90 plus Herford, black Hereford calf and put him on an Angus cow and you're almost getting a full load of heterosis out of that. Um, so that, that's a great advantage to most of our customers who are running those black headed cattle. So I think that's something that definitely needs to be improved in the association. Um, the other part of my answer, I think, is that we need to... Breed wide, and I'm not singling anybody out. Work on hip structure. Um, we see a bunch of cattle out there in our association that have what I'm going to call snail ass. You know, they, they just have a short hip. They're down in the butt. Um, you don't see a big pelvic opening, and it hasn't shown up in our calving ease surprisingly. But uh, you do. You, but it's just kind of a visual and yield issue that I'd see is, as a not very attractive part of a majority of the Black Hereford cattle out there.
0: Well, yeah, and you can see it. You know, I'm not going to act like I'm pointing fingers at other people with that. You can see it in our herd You know, when we run them all together. You can go out there and you can look side by side. We've got Hereford cows out there, Angus cows out there, and Black Hereford cows out there. And there's a lot of things that those Black Herefords look beautiful at, but they definitely are lacking in comparison in that rear end.
1: Right. And there's a lot of yield and cutability that comes along with having that hip structure and a long hip and and just depth of muscle that's on the back end. And that's just a lot of pounds that are being lost for customers.
0: Well, thank you for letting me twist your arm into doing this today.
1: No problem. Glad to do it.
0: Thanks for listening. You can get in on the conversation over at our Facebook page at Black Chronicles, where we'd love to hear from you. Of course, don't forget to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.